0: Bethan is going to come and uh, read to us from Ephesians uh, chapter 4, and then Caleb will come and uh, share God's word with us. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Thank you. I'm Caleb Howard. I'm a member here at Eden. Let me pray to begin our time together in Scripture. Father, I'm just so, so thankful for... All that you do for us in Christ, uh, especially saving us from our sins, making us well with you, making us your children, adopting us as your own, so that all that we can expect forever is your affection, your kindness, your grace. And I need that grace right now. We all need that grace right now. As we think about what this text means and then how we ought to obey it, please help us Please help us to understand what's here and then help us to accept it, receive it gladly and to believe it and obey it. And I pray that you would help me. We depend on you entirely and we pray that you would help us now. In Christ's name. Amen. So, thanks for coming. I think there's an important match very soon, so I'm <laughs> particularly grateful that you came. Uh, what I want to share with you this evening is, is nothing new, so I don't expect that you're going to learn anything particularly new to you this evening. You're all well taught. You come to Eden. Um, and the preaching here is good. It's from the Bible, so nothing here is new. But one of the main things that we do in the church is to remind one another about central things that we all need to keep before us so that we can persevere in believing the gospel, so that we can keep on going to the end. Uh, So much of my own devotional time is spent doing this. Uh, I hope it is for you as well. I get up each day. I just need to trust God today. I just need to keep believing the gospel. I just need help to be faithful. For that, I need to remember who I am in Christ. And I need to know what He's done for me. And I need to see my heart confident in God and what He's done for me in Jesus, and then I need to go and I need to obey God. That's my daily rhythm. Hope it is for you too. And so this evening what I want to do is to just think about that very rhythm. What is the rhythm of the Christian life with respect to moving from gospel to obedience, as it were, or really better, how do we enact gospel obedience? How do we obey the gospel? Rather than producing legalism or something else, How do we enact gospel obedience? Our Bible passage for the evening falls into two parts. Verses 17 to 19 tell us how the Gentiles live, as Paul puts it, symbolic of all who don't trust in Christ. Those who walk in the Pauline language, the NIV translates, live. And this is how Christians lived in their old way. This is what Paul described as the old self, the old man. That's verses 17 to 19. Verses 20 to 24 describe then the new self, that which Christians are, what I am, what I need to be reminded that I am every day, constantly, so that I can be that, so I can live that out. And I assume that that's what you need to be reminded of tonight too. So I want to do that. Let's look first at this section, verses 17 to 19. Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 19. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. Now you can see from verse 17, that first verse that I read, that this whole section is about how... It's about living, about walking. Walking, as you know if you've read the Bible very much, is a pretty common metaphor in Paul for the conduct of your life, the way you normally go, the way you normally live, the patterns of your life, your tendencies, your predilections, how you tend to live your life. It's pretty normal in Paul's language, but it's very normal, very common, specifically in this book in Ephesians. In fact, no less than seven times Paul talks about this notion of living here in Ephesians, and it's worth reciting them briefly. In chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul says to them, You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live or walk when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And this is contrasted later on in Uh, verse 10, with their life now. And the ESV translates that, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them or live in them. In our chapter for tonight, chapter 4, in verse 1, Paul exhorts us to live a life or "'Walk worthy of the calling you've received.'" And then he describes some of the nature of this walk. He says, "'Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace.'" And then in chapter 5, he returns to this, this subject three times. In verse 2, he says, "'Walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us as a fragrant offering.'" And sacrifice to God. Verse 8 For you were once darkness, but now you were light in the Lord. Live or walk as children of the light. And verse 15 Be very careful then how you live or walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So, the first thing that I would encourage you to do tonight is to care about how you live. Think it matters how you walk, because it does. It's here over and over again in this letter. It's here over and over again in the Bible. God cares how we live. Now, I'm aware that in settings like ours in an evangelical church like ours, it's not uncommon for some people to be a bit confused, let's say, over the role of obedience and the role of faith and how they relate. And it might be a tendency for some to drive a wedge between these two things or to overemphasize one or the other. So some of us have natural tendencies, propensities toward wanting more or less structure, more or less rules in our lives and our natural imbalances, none of us is balanced, will lead us, most likely, more than we think, toward understanding faith and obedience in ways that are unhelpful. But it's important to recognize that Scripture emphasizes both. Scripture emphasizes both faith and obedience, but in their rightful place. Faith is a constant for us. Faith is always there. We are converted and we grow in godliness. We grow in the faith by having our whole hope in the gospel. That's a constant. Let me be very clear right at the beginning of this sermon. What God has done for us in the gospel, what God has done for us in the gospel, is the ground of our getting in the faith. And it's the ground of our staying in the faith. If you ask, How can I be saved? the Bible everywhere will answer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, Acts 16, 31. And if you ask, how do I stay saved? The Bible will answer, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 1, 7 to 8. Or if you ask, how do I obey? Scripture will everywhere exhort you to strive, strive, work hard for obedience on the basis of God's prior work. As Paul urges the Philippians, as we've been hearing on Sunday mornings in 2.12, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. So, in Scripture, our striving to obey God in this way is the fruit of of our faith in God's prior work for us. It is its natural outcome. It's like a bird flying. They just do, because it's in their nature. Or a fish swimming. A Christian obeys. But it doesn't, it doesn't occur mechanically. It doesn't just happen as if the Christian becomes a Christian and then they sit down and do nothing and somehow obedience occurs. We must put forth effort. Paul calls us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We must, in Galatians 5.25, keep in step with the Spirit. God is in us to will and to work, so we need to respond to that work of God in us and will and work for His good pleasure. So, Paul's emphasis on walking here in Ephesians is not out of order. It's not strange. It's not odd in God's economy. It focuses our attention On this whole process and this evening, I want to think together about what this is like. What is it like to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? What is it like in our minds to put off the old self, in the language of our passage, to put off the old self, to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, and to put on the new self? How does that work? How does this work in our heads? How does it work in our souls? And I'm asking this question this evening not just because I was asked to preach. I want to do this. I want to be godly. I need this. I'm preaching this passage because I want to grow in obedience. I think it will help me and it's hard to grow. As you'll know. So how do we obey? What's the pattern of Christian obedience? Now if we look back at our passage it may seem a bit strange that when Paul introduces this whole notion of living, in verse 17, that he doesn't immediately go to a list of things that characterize the Gentiles' way of life. I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. His first move is to think about the underlying patterns beneath the decisions that we make, beneath the ways that we live. And in verse eighteen, Paul clarifies what he means by the futility of their thinking. He means that their thinking faculties are in the dark. They try to think, but they're futile. When they think especially about things to do with God, or things things about themselves, the state of their hearts, they get it wrong. They're alienated, therefore. They're outsiders with respect to God's presence because of the states of their hearts, the state of their hearts. They don't know things in biblical logic and this logic because they have hard hearts. Hard hearts, as you're probably aware if you've read the Bible much, is a stubborn heart, right? So think of, think of Pharaoh in the story of the Exodus, in the early chapters of the book of Exodus, when Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and tell him to let God's people go, and he won't listen he hardens his heart. He stiffens his heart, stubborns his heart against God's command, and he refuses to listen. So, hard heartedness leads, in this case, to ignorance. And what the Bible means by heart is something like what we mean by mind. It's a bit messier than that. But think of the place where we think, where we consider, we deliberate, we decide, we prefer, we desire. So hardening the heart happens when we hear the truth about God and we decide against it and we resist it. Now it's really important when we read this passage to recognize all of the logical relations in Paul's claims here. So look back at verse 18 with me. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Now the hardening of their hearts... Occurs because of the ignorance, uh, sorry, the ignorance that's in them occurs because of the hardness of their hearts. There's a relationship here between ignorance, between not knowing something, and heart hardening. So to harden the heart is actually to plunge yourself into darkness, into an ignorance about the most important things in the universe, because God is the key to knowing things. And when I say that God is the key to knowing things, to knowledge, I don't just mean that He's sort of one element in a syllogism. He is that. He can be a necessary element in a syllogism, but it doesn't go far enough when we ask the question, how ought we to walk? And how does the knowledge of God help us to know how to walk? And if we read Romans 1, which is a really important parallel passage to this text, I won't read it, we recognize that. We have to be submitted to God. It's not simply a matter of knowing that God is there. We have to submit to God as King. We have to honor Him as God. We have to recognize what He is and respond appropriately. We need to treasure the glory of God as God treasures the glory of God. And if we don't, there are things that we simply can't know. There are things that we just can't access. And in particular, we can't know how we ought to walk. When people exchange the truth about God for a lie, as Romans 1 puts it, they give themselves over to the lie, and this produces a kind of ignorance, a self-delusion that compounds as the lie is believed and is lived out, and the heart becomes callous in the words of verse 19. It lost all sensitivity. And when this happens, there is a devotedness to sin, a devotedness to sin, a greediness for sin, eagerness, zeal for sin. And this makes the presence of God unthinkable. God will not be where He is not treasured. God will not be where He is not feared. And so alienation occurs. The presence of God is unthinkable in the presence of sin. Alienation follows necessarily. Now, you need to recognize that this is, and, and it's always been, the way things are. It's not often recognized to be the way things are, but it, it is. And if you think you can live in a world where there is no God and where God doesn't matter, you need to know that God is, God is conspicuous by His absence as well as in His presence. And the absence of Him means being plunged into moral and epistemological darkness because He will, he will not be where He's not feared and treasured. And striking here how Paul frames the behavior of the Gentiles in terms of what he calls impurity in verse 19, that which cannot come into the presence of God. And if you're thinking of Leviticus, you're right to. This is purity language that we find also in Leviticus. Purity is a state of being which allows you to be in the presence of God if you're in Leviticus. The impure thing cannot come before God. Sin cannot come before God. To be clear, sin leads to alienation from the life of God, which is to say, sin leads to death. So if you demonstrate a pattern of this kind of zeal for sin, this kind of eagerness after sin, greed for sin, eagerness, to commit all manner of impurity. You are showing the signs of being alienated from God. You are, according to Paul, a dead person. But I want to draw your attention here to where Paul sees the locus of the Gentiles' problem. There's relatively little here about the concrete activities done by the Gentiles. I mean, sometimes Paul does list them, And we'll read a passage in Colossians 3 where he does later. Sometimes he does list them, but here he actually gets underneath the actions that the Gentiles do with their bodies. He gets down to their motivations. He speaks of their minds and their hearts, and he says not just that they practice impurity, but that they're corrupt to the core of themselves, and the way they live is the fruit of that corruption this is precisely how human walking, human living, works. Sin and righteousness begin before we do them with our bodies. They're motivated. Sin and righteousness are motivated by wills, which are motivated by desires. We decide to do what we want to do. So much for the living of the Gentiles. So much of the living of the old man. Paul has been telling us how not to walk not to live. And in verse 20 here, he's very emphatic, that, however, is not the way of life you learned. That is not the way you learned Christ, he says. And I want to say to you, Eden Baptist Church, that is not the way you learned Christ. Christ doesn't teach you to live this way. This is not a way to live. It's not the way you learned Christ. This raises the question, how do we live? What is the way? What is the new man? How does walking work for us in the new self? In verse 21, Paul says, when you heard about Christ, sorry, that, who, uh, that however is not the way of life you learned, when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. He is assuming that These people had heard about Christ, had been taught about Christ. They knew what the way of the new man is. And I'm assuming that here. I think most of you probably have been taught in Christ. You do know what it is to live in the new man. But what's that like? And we get that in verses 22 to 24. The truth that is in Jesus teaches us three things. Verses 22 to 24. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So the new way, the new way to live, the new man, the new self, means first to put off the old self, verse 22. Secondly, to be renewed in the attitude or the spirit of the mind, verse 23, and thirdly, to put on the new self, verse 24. So I want us to think about this. I want us to get in our minds that as a pattern, as a way of living our lives. And we can think about that in terms of our, the scope of our lives as Christians. We can think about it on a scale of days or months or weeks. Or we can think about it in individual instants, individual particulars of life events of life. How is it that we put off, renew, and put on? Now, you're aware, I'm sure, that this whole business of putting off and putting on is clothing language. We put off the old self and we put on the new self, a bit like we take off a ratty old coat. It doesn't keep us very warm in the winter, and we put on a nice new coat that doesn't have holes in it. And sandwiched between these two commands, put off and put on, well, these, these parts of the pattern is this notion of being renewed in the attitude of our minds. So, how do we put this into practice? Well, the first thing is to recall that the emphasis in verses 17 to 19 on the underlying motivations of the Gentiles, the underlying motivations of the old man, the state of mind that alienates them from God. The issue is raised again here in verse 22. You were taught with regard to your former manner of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Note the relation here between the corruption of the old man and the desires of the man. Desires lead to this corruption. So, Paul appeals to desires which drive decisions to act sinfully, and these desires deceive, they lead astray, they perpetuate lies. To get this into our minds, we've fixed this relation between the underlying desires and how we act on the outside. I I want want us to think for a moment about how James, in the first chapter of his letter, describes the experience of temptation. If you look, you don't need to turn there at the moment, but if you look in James 1 verses 14 to 15, James says, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. He's saying temptation occurs because desire happens and it entices us, it drags us away. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So that's the whole train of things from desire to death. Temptation and sin do not arise from a kind of stoic decision-making process where you sort of sit and emotionlessly decide between two options, and you weigh up the options, decide on the basis of pros and cons which one is better, and you choose. Temptation and sin occur because of sinful desire. We want things, and when we want things more than we want God, we are sinning, and we will sin to get them. And James carries this on through into a particular application. Later on in his letter in chapter 4, in verses 1 to 4, he says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? So he's saying you fight with one another because you want stuff. You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask. God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? James is saying that we want things, so we send to get them. But this demonstrates that we actually love the world more than we love God. That's why he makes this turn to the notion of spiritual adultery in verse 4 and warns us that, Friendship of the world, friendship with the world means enmity with God. So our desires are at the root of why we do what we do. We should desire God. We should, in the words of Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, and might, but we desire other things rather than God or more than God, and this leads to sinning against God and against other people. Now, what God has done for us in Christ is to strike at the very root of this problem, God does not simply come to us and give us a list of things to do to change our lives. He actually does something for us to change the root problem, the desires that lie at the base of why we do what we do. He changes us right at the level of our desires, our longings, our preferences, what, we, what happens at the core of who we are. When we put our hope in the gospel, we become New people. I don't know if you ever just sit back and think about that kind of language and what it means. That it's real. Like Paul is not talking in a metaphor when he says that. That's a, that's a real thing that happens to us. We are, we become different people. We are new people. This is an authentic, miraculous change that occurs in each person who trusts in Christ, who hopes, believes in, the gospel. God replaces old identities with new ones, old habits with new ones, old desires, old longings, old uh, motivations with new ones. And this makes it possible for us to obey, to obey from the heart. It really is possible. Now I'm just aware that some of us come to a sermon like this, and we hear sort of lists and calls like this to do things well, and we just feel crushed under it. Just feel like, I can't do that. I tried, can't do it. I want you to observe that the lists are there in the Bible. And given what we know about God, we can infer from that that they are there for our good. And God comes to us and says, I've actually done all the necessary groundwork to make this possible for you. And I hope to encourage you tonight that it doesn't, in the end, depend on you that God has actually done everything necessary to make this possible so that lists don't become burdensome. They become possibilities, aspirations, things that might really happen, things that, in fact, will really happen, we're told. Promises are given to this effect. God will make us right. God will make us whole. He will make us holy. Now, back in Ephesians 4, 21, Paul is telling his readers that they were taught in Christ right from the start of their Christian experience, namely that they, became, they had become new people. That has already happened. They had been taught to put off the old self, to be renewed and to put on the new self right from the start. That was, that was a continuous reality right from the beginning of their teaching in Christ. And this pattern is what defines the new way of life for them. And Paul here wants it to reveal itself in all kinds of aspects of life. And that's why in verse 25, he raises this metaphor of putting off again. Verse 25, therefore each of you must put off. falsehood. That's the application of a clothing language to a particular thing. Namely, stop lying. Don't lie to people. Put it off. You have put these things off. That was the nature of your Christian experience right from the start. So do it. So put it off. And so we have this kind of coalescence between what has been happening right from the start and what ought to keep happening. It has been done for us and we ought to keep doing it. We have been doing it and it ought to keep going. It ought to continue. That's the nature of the Christian experience. The putting off, the renewal, the putting on is how we start and how we continue. It's a continuous reality It may be a bit more clear if we look at a parallel passage to this, Colossians 3, verses 1 to 10. It's very, very similar. You can turn there, though I'll read it out to you now. Colossians in general is quite similar to Ephesians, and Paul is dealing with very similar things. Colossians 3, 1 to 10 lays this out in slightly different language, but you can see how similar it is. There Paul says, since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you have died, you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. There's a list. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming." You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to one another. Some other thing that he's commanded here in Ephesians 4. Do not lie to one another since you have taken off your old self. Notice, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge in the, in knowledge in the image of its creator. Very similar language there. And Paul is calling us to a similar reality. The way we live flows out of who we are, out of our identity, out of our new selves. And this identity is something that's already accomplished. Our identity is something that's already done for us, already established for us, that we've already begun. But equally... It's something that needs to be carried out, something that needs to be enacted. We have already taken off the old self. It's died. We've already taken on new attitudes of mind. We've already put on the new self. So we need to continue taking off the old self and killing it, putting it to death. We need to continue being renewed in the attitude of our minds, and we need to continue clothing ourselves in the new self. The way we live now flows out of, our, out of who we are, what's been accomplished for us already in Christ. In the language of Ephesians 4, 22-24, our old self is being corrupted through its deceitful desires, but our new self is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Righteousness and holiness, the very things that are features of that which is in the presence of God. We can be with Him this way. That's what we are. This is what we are. So let's be what we are. I want to dwell on this pattern of being who we are, of being what we are, now last of all. What does this look like? How do we enact the pattern of being who we are? If we find ourselves not being who we are, how do we change? How do we enact this pattern? Well, first of all, don't start with the superficial. Superficial. Don't start with the superficial. Don't start simply by, 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 by doing things to change your exterior habits, your external habits. Don't start by simply thinking and saying that you'll not do the same old things again and you'll start doing new things. Those are important things to do. You'll get there, they're valuable. That's not where Paul starts. You need to start where sin starts, start in the desire. Start in the motivations. In the logic of James, you want things more than you want God. So you sin. You need to put off the old self with its corrupting desires, be renewed in the attitude of your mind, and put on the new self. That's the pattern of our lives. This is fundamentally a habit of repentance. You can see the turning here, the movement in the opposite direction. Put off, renew, put on. Turn back from what you've set out to do. We need to habitually turn from the old self to the new self. It needs to happen daily. For me, it happens several times a day. It needs to happen several times a day even if it doesn't. This needs to be a consistent pattern of life. Put off, renew, put on. Repent, turn from old ways, turn to new ways. Whenever the old self rears its head, you have to turn from it to the new self the new way of life. But how do we really do this? How do we enact the turning? Well, the Bible passages that we've been reading this evening are telling us what to believe about ourselves, aren't they? They hold up a mirror to us which shows us who we are in Christ against the backdrop of who we were. Assuming that you've learned Christ, that you've heard about Him, that you were taught in Him, know your identity to be this new person. When Christ died, your old self died with Him along with its sin and its patterns of life and the posture of mind that it had toward God. Listen to me here. This is true about you. If you're a Christian, if you've trusted Christ, if you know Christ, this is true about you. You died with Him. You're dead. And you're alive. You've risen to new life with Him. Listen listen to to the truth about yourself. You have a renewed mind. It's there. You have the Holy Spirit. Sin has been decisively defeated, death has no teeth for you. You're more firmly fixed in Christ than, than Mount Everest is fixed in the Himalayas. Everything that's necessary for you to succeed in this has been secured by Christ. It's done, it's settled. All that's left is for God to bring to fruition what He started, by working in you to will and to work for His good pleasure, and He will bring it about. This means that the corrupting desires of the old self are being overcome by desire for righteousness and holiness in the new self that you wear. This is a reality about you. You're no longer hard of heart toward God. You just think back to your life. If you are a Christian. I mean, just the very fact that you you thought to be that you became a Christian, that you repented of sin, you turned to God. That's different. That's not hard heartedness. That's soft heartedness toward God. That's receiving God. This is what you are. You're no longer ignorant about the things to do with Him. You're not you're not in the category of the Gentiles, that first part in verses 17 to 19. There is light in your mind. You're not in darkness. You're reconciled to God. Please believe this about yourself. Believe this. It's true. The Bible tells you repeatedly that it's true. Your whole hope is there, your whole confidence is there. You won't have confidence unless you believe this about yourself. Believe it. It's true if you believe it about yourself, if you know this to be true on the basis of what God says, it will save you from a thousand temptations. you resist the devil and he'll flee. But how do we bring ourselves to believe things? And this is hard. What about when you leave tonight? You go home. You get up in the morning. You go to work. What then? You're not here in front of me hearing the text being preached the confidence that you feel now, maybe, you you sort of lose, you wake up, you're grumpy. I'm grumpy when I wake up. What do we do? Keeping in mind that you have the Holy Spirit, that you are the new man, I would urge you to regularly put yourself in view of the exact details of your new identity. Regularly put yourself in view of the exact details of your new identity. You need to, to wash yourself in the realities of who you are constantly. Meditate on Bible passages like this one. Take Ephesians 4, verses 17 and following, and meditate on it until you bleed Bible. Better, memorize the passage. When they asked me to preach this the sermon I I knew what to preach because I'm memorizing this text. I'm memorizing this text because if I don't, I'm discouraged. And I don't have any way to fight sin. And and I can't continue in in the faith. I can't keep believing the gospel unless God is constantly telling me who I am and reminding me of what what He's done for me. I need passages like this in my head or I get led astray. So I'm memorizing the passage. I would encourage you, memorize the passage. And then when when you're away from your Bible, or you're away from a sermon, or you're away from church or whatever, it's in your head. You, You meditate on it. You think about it. And it encourages you. It shapes your mind. I think that this is one application of this notion of renewal. Be renewed, he says, in the spirit of your minds. Take Bible and let it shape your head, your thinking, your brain, your mind. And you will start to think in the ways that Scripture is contoured. It's wonderfully freeing. It's wonderfully helpful in all kinds of ways. Wonderfully encouraging. And it will empower you. Because the desire that gives temptation its power then is gone. You see who you are. You're glad in it. And you're free. And then a final way of enacting the pattern here. And I close with this because everything else needed to be said first. Obey. Go obey. Don't lie. You don't need to lie. God has freed you from that. That's the old man. You put that behind. So put it behind. Don't lie. Tell the truth with everyone. Don't sin. You don't have to. Because God has made you a new person. And knowing that you're a new person, you can be obedient. You can walk in obedience. These lists of things to do are welcome. They're exciting. They're like cold, fresh water on a hot day. You read them and think, I get to do that. I can obey the Lord. I can be godly. I can follow Him. I can express my faith by obedience. It's in the nature of an apple tree to produce apples. Apples produce apple trees. Apple trees produce apples. And the other thing is true too. And it's in the nature of a Christian to obey, to produce fruit, to bear fruit. So bear fruit, obey. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all that you've done for us in Christ. We thank You that Your work is in every respect prior to ours, that You have formed the groundwork, the basis, the root of all of our transformation, all of our obedience, all of our bearing fruit. And there is in us no need to worry, no need to fear, to be anxious. We are set free now to obey. And we pray that You would help us now to obey You. In Christ's name, amen.